0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by Hitachi Energy. How is the grid evolving and changing? What does it mean for your business, your energy needs, your customers? Whatever your goals, look to Hitachi Energy for the right technologies to help unlock new revenue streams, maximise renewable integration and lower carbon emissions. Visit hitachienergy.com slash offering solutions grid edge solutions. This is the Energy Gang, A discussion show about the fast changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. Welcome to the show. This week, a breakthrough in power generation technology that's as big for energy as the Wright brothers' first flight was for aviation. At least, that's what the company behind the project says. We'll be looking behind the hype to assess the real potential of this new way to generate electricity. Plus, as yet another independent energy retailer goes bust in the UK, requiring a multi-billion pound bailout, we investigate the pros and cons of competitive markets for the energy transition. And also, the Biden administration has orchestrated an international release of oil from strategic reserves, possibly with a bit too much success because the price of crude absolutely collapsed last week. What is the administration's strategy, and is it really compatible with a move towards net zero emissions for the US? To discuss these questions, I'm joined as usual by Melissa Lott, who's Director of Research at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Hello, Melissa. How are you? How was Thanksgiving?
1: Hey, Ed. Thanksgiving was great. You know, enjoyed a couple down days, ate a lot of delicious food uh, made by mostly my dad, Um, but it was great. I just had a good time. And we went on an impromptu road trip actually out into West Texas, so I saw a lot of wind turbines, which makes me happy.
0: And you also contributed a bit to U.S. oil demand then?
1: I did. I did. Because uh, our vehicle that tows our trailer absolutely still runs on diesel. I can't get an electric one yet that has the range that I need to pull my trailer. But I'm optimistic that that will change in a few years.
0: Indeed. And also returning this week, we have Emily Chasen from Generate Capital, the green infrastructure investment firm. Hi, Emily. Good to see you again. How was your Thanksgiving?
2: Great to see you, Ed and Melissa. Thanks for having me back. It was a great Thanksgiving. Had a good trip through the Northeast. I did drive a hybrid and was grateful for it, as I saw like the prices range from like $3 a gallon to $4.75. So um, it was definitely an interesting trip up and glad to have the hybrid at Thanksgiving.
0: Yeah, absolutely. As we'll discuss later in this show, the price of gasoline very much on everyone's minds in America right now, as you say, particularly a lot of people driving over the holiday season. So, We'll come to that in a moment. But first of all, I wanted to talk about this company, NetPower. Earlier this month, NetPower started delivering electricity to the grid in Texas for the first time from its pilot plant in Laporte which is just southeast of Houston. The CEO of the company certainly wasn't letting false modesty hold him back when he was talking about the importance of this breakthrough. He said, this is a Wright Brothers first flight kind of breakthrough for energy. He said, zero emission, low cost electricity delivered to the grid from natural gas fueled technology. So what it is, this is a plant that burns natural gas for power generation, just like a lot of conventional plants do, but it inherently captures the carbon dioxide it produces, so it can be sent for use or sequestration anywhere that is convenient. It does sound like quite an interesting and significant breakthrough, but it also possibly sounds a bit like it's too good to be true. Uh, Melissa, can you tell us a bit about this? I mean, how does this actually work, this plant? What is the technology in operation here?
1: Yes, yeah, so at the highest level, this technology is still one where, as you said, we do burn natural gas, so it's fossil fuels. However, that fossil gas is burned with pure oxygen. And so if you step through, any number of you know flow diagrams. I'm having flashbacks to grad school, actually, at UT Austin, where we're having to you know map out cycles in power plants and understand how all the fuels move around. But if you map it all out, essentially, you've got that fossil gas being burned with pure oxygen, and then the CO2 that's produced is actually what is run through the combustor and the turbine, the heat exchanger, and the compressor. So it replaces what would typically be steam in today's fossil fuel power plants. And then the concept is that this captured CO2 could be either stored, and we would assume that would be underground, or it could be used in CO2. CO2 to products or CO2 to fuels processes. So carbon utilization, because in the end, those carbon and oxygen molecules can be quite valuable if they can be turned into things that we want.
0: So to be clear about this, then what's different about that stream of CO2 that comes out of a net power plant? Because obviously a conventional gas-fired power plant also creates carbon dioxide mixed into the general uh, flow of the exhaust gases. Typically, I think something like 8 to 10% of the exhaust gas from a regular gas-fired power plant would be carbon dioxide. How is the uh, net power plant exhaust different then?
1: Yeah, so I think the interesting piece here is that if you look at all the information that net power has put out um, about the overall process, you know, once that CO2 is coming out of the heat exchanger and the water is separated off, you actually have pipeline ready CO2, which is inherently more valuable than maybe some kind of mixed stream where you've got CO2 and other gases going on. Right.
0: So it's quite a small plant at the moment, right? It's I think it's 25 megawatts of power they're generating out of it, which is fairly small. That's enough to power thousands of homes in Texas. I did the math on that. I think it's about 15,000 homes you could power with a 25 megawatt power plant. So it's not not nothing. It's not a a laboratory scale project. It's not little something working on a desk. It is a serious pilot plant, but clearly it would need to be scaled up enormously to actually make a material difference to power generation in the US or, or globally. What do you think of the chances that it can be scaled up? Is this something that's got the potential to get much bigger?
1: I'd say, you know, three quick things before I dive into that exact question. First, it's important to note in all of this that NetPower is saying that the process that they're using does not produce nitrogen oxides, sulfur oxides, or particulate matter of air pollution. So these are also important things to consider when we think about the continued use of these facilities. The fact that they don't produce air pollution, that we think of the Clean Air Act, et cetera. It's important to note that. Also important to note, though, here... On a negative side, is that still natural gas is being burned, and that natural gas has to get to the facility. And so, when we think about a net zero world, that that is something that can't be ignored. So that natural gas has to be produced and it has to be moved over to the facility. Um, The third thing I want to flag, and it actually plays into the answer to your question, is that net power is presumably going to be using the forty five Q tax credit with this. You know, we're actually capturing and storing carbon, or at least that's where this is going. Um, So presumably they'll be using that, and I think. In terms of the size of the facility that we're looking at today, the one that is operated, it's a proof of concept. It's shown that the process works. Now we have to have the economics work out. And much of that comes down to how we put a value on decarbonization and technologies that help us get to a 100% solution. So that's things like 45Q, like I mentioned, but it's also having markets that recognize the value of having these firm dispatchable resources that are lower carbon than the counterparts that we've been using so far. This whole thing is a culmination of a lot of work. And quite frankly, I would say it's extremely exciting.
0: So why is it so exciting, though? People will say, listening to this, I'm sure there'll be people who say, well, hey, look, this is just another power plant, which is burning natural gas. It's creating carbon dioxide. What's really radical or revolutionary about this? This doesn't sound like a game changer to us.
1: I mean... I know that there's the quote of it being a Wright Brothers level breakthrough, that whole quote. and I'm not sure I sign up for that one, though I know many you know, people were cheering on. But this is a technology. We've talked about pieces of this kind of a cycle and the possibility of using these technologies. And the technologies have taken a lot of investment and time to actually develop and actually have it come online and work is really exciting. It's one of those. This isn't a theory of something we might be able to do someday. It's actually a technology that put power onto the grid and worked.
0: So Emily, what do you think about this? Is this a technology that you've looked at at Generate Capital? Is this something you've been thinking about at all?
2: yeah well this is really exciting to see this kind of breakthrough and see a pilot you know reach that stage of productivity um we've definitely been looking at carbon capture and storage for a while at generate it's definitely an area we've been interested in for a long time um it's still pretty nascent you know um so we really focus on proven technology so when you have a pilot like this that is a chance where you say okay well how can this scale and that's when you really start to look at the action in that market and the way to get to scale it's still pretty nascent across the board and carbon capture and storage, there's a long way to go to get to economic viability.
0: Are there any particular carbon capture technologies that you're most interested in? As you say, you've been looking at the technologies that are kind of better developed, further advanced, closer to commercialization. Are there any particular approaches look more promising to you than others?
2: Well, I guess when you talk about carbon capture and storage, you're actually talking about a pretty wide group of technologies and processes. There's the carbon capture part and the storage part and the place that the carbon comes from. So there's really like three different spots where you're sort of touching um, carbon in that process. So there's several types of carbon capture and storage that are pretty interesting. There's these nature-based solutions. Then there's solutions like what NetPower is doing, where there's are sort of carbon utilization technologies. So there's two different tracks you can go that are pretty interesting. And they're actually is quite a lot of federal support for it right now, which I think is you know, why the energy industry has been so interested in this space for so long. First, there was that EOR tax credit, and now there's also the 45Q tax credit and the thought that you could move it to sort of a direct pay model, which would really lower the cost of building and creating these types of technologies and accelerating deployment. So I think There is a lot of action happening right now, so it's great to see these companies reach pilot stage and um, see what can happen after that.
1: I think this is an important comment here about just there being such a diversity of technologies. So, just within the carbon capture space, uh, I'm, I'm remembering my colleague Stuart Cohen, who's now over at the National Renewable Energy Labs, but we went to graduate school together, and he gave us the primer on the pre-combustion, post-combustion, oxy-combustion processes. They're just all about the capture, um, which is really interesting to break through. This is an oxy-combustion. Process within the net power facility. So there's a lot of different technologies that are like under development and could be used in different applications. But to see one actually be proven out and come to fruition, even on a small scale, is exciting.
2: Also, what was interesting about the net power one is that it uses our existing infrastructure. So really, when you look at developing future technology, sometimes you can accelerate a lot faster when you use an existing pipeline structure like net power is. So um, that's definitely something to watch as well.
0: So. Clearly, we know how to store carbon dioxide underground, under the seabed. That's something which is absolutely technically possible, but it's something that economically, commercially only makes sense if you get funding to do it. If you get, if there's a carbon price or there is a tax credit or wherever, whatever it might be, some kind of government financial support to make it worthwhile to store carbon dioxide in that way. If, on the other hand, you can use the carbon dioxide in some way. And Melissa was making that point earlier. She was saying that, well, those carbon atoms, those oxygen atoms are potentially valuable. There are things that potentially can be done with them. They can be turned into useful products. If you can do that, that fundamentally changes, I think, the economics of carbon capture. It could mean that it's much more attractive to trap carbon dioxide if you can turn it into useful products that can then be sold So I wonder how much does that, Emily, when you're thinking about this, when you're thinking about issues to do with carbon capture, where you might be wanting to place your bets as generate capital in that field, how important is it to you that you can take carbon dioxide and do something useful with it? People often talk about carbon capture, utilization and storage. How important is that utilization component, do you think?
2: Right. Well, yeah, I think you're right to separate the two ideas of the carbon capture and the potential utilization of it or the storage and sequestration of it. So when we talk about, you know, using the tax credits to incentivize growth in this space, you have to do the sequestration to get it because the 45Q tax credit is computed based on per metric ton of qualified carbon dioxide captured and sequestered, right? So there's that. So if, you want, if you're using the tax credit to get to economic viability on a project, you know, you have to know that sequestration is the goal there. If there's other utilization uses that can make it more economically viable, you know, we see this issue in plastics, too, in ocean plastic and saying, you know, well, how can we create a market for ocean plastic to incentivize people to pull it out of the ocean? So that's the same thing in the carbon capture and storage space, where how can you create a market that is gonna really want this product that you're capturing from the atmosphere? So using carbon that you capture from the air for something like cement or for electricity, um, like what NetPower is doing, or even, you know, there's that company called Airco that makes that bottle of eco vodka that removes carbon dioxide from the air. You know, there's lots of ways that people are developing to um make this economically viable and i think that's actually something extra we have to incentivize on top of the carbon capture and storage is people finding you know economically viable uses for it
1: I think when we're talking about storage versus utilization, we need to step back a moment and think about the broad picture of we're talking about not just decarbonizing one power plant or even the power sector. We're talking about decarbonizing entire economies. And so at some point, we're going to have to wrangle with this circular carbon economy concept. How do we make sure that we are reaching net zero goals while still producing all these products that Emily's talking about? And so within that, you know, sometimes, maybe, given the circumstances, it makes sense to just send that CO2 underground either as a gas or turn it into rocks or, you know, different types of processes there. But a lot of times it may make sense to use that resource and actually store it in products that we use to actually create products that we want in other parts of the economy to reduce the overall footprint. So these are some tough questions that we need to grapple with sooner rather than later. And I know that we're seeing a lot of activity in the industrial sector about how do we actually replace all the upstream components that go into producing the cement, the steel, the rubbers, the plastics, every single thing that we're using in our daily lives.
0: So question, how important ultimately is carbon capture going to be, do you think, as part of, as you say, decarbonizing the whole economy? When you think about power generation, I guess we have quite a few other technologies for decarbonizing power. We have renewables, obviously. We have nuclear power. We have um, potentially hydrogen for power generation uh, increasingly being developed. Quite a few things you can do. And there are also technologies for industrial uses, steel making, petrochemicals, whatever, again, that will take carbon out of the system without requiring large volumes of carbon capture and storage. I actually heard Francesco Staracci, who was the chief executive of NL, you know, the um, uh, Italian power company, big Italian-based power company with global reach, essentially he's very sceptical about carbon capture as a technology, doesn't believe it's really ever going to catch on because renewables and possibly to an extent nuclear power will outcompete it and we'll have storage coming up very fast, which will back up renewables and so on. And so carbon capture is not going to be needed. Interested in both of your thoughts really about, it. do you agree with that? Do you see, Do you think there is going to be a crucial role for carbon capture somewhere in the energy mix? I mean, Emily, what, what do you reckon? Is this something we are ultimately going to need at scale or are we in fact ultimately going to be able to do without it?
2: So it's something that can buy us runway if that's what we need potentially. So if it can get to scale, it's really quite exciting because it probably would enable us to reach the global goals better. It doesn't really fully exist today except in this pilot phase. So there is quite a lot of work to do at a very fast pace to get there, but there is quite a lot of incentive to do that as well. It's an area that could be super effective for those heavy industry spaces like steel and cement and those places that, you know, it's been really hard to figure out how we're going to reduce the environmental cost of operating. So I think carbon capture is something that we should really think about how we can be scaling it and um, finding the pathway to potentially scale it. We might not have that yet. You know, it might be something that we develop in a few years, and it becomes clearer over time. It's going to take a little bit of experimentation and lots of different models to see whether we can get to something that's really viable and scalable and repeatable.
1: And I'll say, I don't see when I look at the numbers, how we get to the well below two degrees that we're aiming for in the Paris Climate Agreement without negative emissions technologies. And so we often talk about maybe, you know, carbon capture being attached to fossil plants. Well, carbon capture can also be attached to bioenergy plants and get us negative emissions to offset those parts of the economy that are just gonna be really hard to decarbonize and get to zero. So, you know, when I look at the numbers, That's just what it's saying the other thing i'd say is that even in the power sector just the power sector alone if we want to keep the cost down like emily was talking about we need the three buckets of technology that you know folks on the show have heard me talk about before which is those variable renewables the energy storages and also firm dispatchable power maybe that comes with nuclear power maybe that comes with hydrogen if we can crack that and get zero carbon hydrogen prices you know down low enough maybe it's geothermal in some regions where we have those resources but This is another tool in a toolbox, and the toolbox doesn't actually have that many tools in it. So eliminating one has a big impact. And so it's one of those pursuing a lot of different paths to get us to our goal. We need firm dispatchable power resources. This is one that just proved that it can do it. Now we have to figure out if the economics can work on it, but it is a technology that works. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about being really exciting, because it's another potential tool to put in that toolbox.
0: Now, the pros and cons of competitive markets for electricity. When the power industry was born, and for about the first 100 years or so, customers generally didn't get any choice about where to buy their electricity. The power grid is what economists call a natural monopoly. It makes no sense to have different suppliers running separate wires into every home and business in the country. And so that's generally meant that the industry is around what you might call the traditional utility model. You had big, vertically integrated utilities that generated the power, distributed it, and sold it. Since around the 1980s, though, that model has started to break down in many places. We generally nowadays think that competition leads to better outcomes for consumers and for everyone else. Quite a few power markets in the US and around the world have been opened up to increased competition to give people a choice of supplier. And I think many people would say that model has definitely been beneficial, and we'll come to some of those benefits in a moment. But what we've been also seeing quite a bit this year is some of the downsides of the competitive model. In particular, when you allow companies to compete, you have to accept that not every company is going to succeed. And this year, we've had dozens of competitive energy suppliers failing in the UK, and some suppliers failing in other countries too. The biggest of these failures in the UK has been a company called Bulb Energy. It was a large independent energy supplier with 1.7 million customers. It's gone bankrupt, and it's now had to be bailed out by the government. Emily, you've taken a look at the Bulb story, I think. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there?
2: So I have been following bulb. Um, I don't know if you know my history that I was back in 2008 and 2011, I um, ran the bankruptcy team at Reuters in the financial crisis. So I follow bankruptcies pretty closely out of habit. But the bulb is an interesting case. And I do think we're going to see a lot of business models challenged in the energy space. Um, and especially in utilities, which is interesting because utilities have been such a stalwart for investors over, you know, their lifetimes. Um, it's sort of interesting to think about as a utilities is an area where there's going to be a lot of disruption that we're going to see. So what happened at Bulb Energy is the UK government is bailed them out. They said they're this is one of the largest energy suppliers in the UK. They want uninterrupted service. You know, you can't live today in this world and have interrupted energy service that affects millions and millions of people. So that's probably the right move. It's the first forced nationalization of a British company since 2008. So there are some echoes of that earlier time I was just talking about. The costs for running this utility model are rapidly changing. And I think what you're touching on, Ed, is this issue of consumer choice. And What's different about today is that consumers actually have a tremendous amount of choice in how they get their energy. And this is something that utilities, which are really used to not giving consumers that much choice and treating them as a monopoly, are have to really adapt their business models to be ready for. Um, and they might not be able to do it the way that, you know, you just – are expected to use one particular utility or have less choice or have that centrally planned model when there's so many options available today and there's so many ways for consumers to actually make choices around how they get energy and demand a different kind of energy. That's something that is gonna be really disruptive in this space. It could cause cash crunches. It requires different business models. Um that's why you've seen in the US there's are some areas where you know utilities have been really against renewable deployment.
0: I mean question there isn't bulb in a sense evidence that this model of increased consumer choice doesn't always work and I know there were kind of special features about what happened in the UK there was price regulation so that the, the government controlled regulators controlled the amount that companies could charge to their customers and they had that at the same time as of course and we've been talking about it quite a bit on this podcast the huge increase in wholesale energy prices in Europe, rocketing prices for power and for gas in the wholesale markets, and companies have just been getting crushed between those two forces of massively rising costs and the inability to pass on those costs to their consumers. So, as I say, some special factors. But just as a general principle, then, we're kind of seeing that there is a lot of volatility in energy markets. Prices do vary a lot. And that if you are one of these small independent suppliers, it can be very difficult to make a business in that industry. And perhaps would we be actually better off sticking to that very traditional, uncompetitive, as you say, that that utility business model that has been a kind of a stalwart of the economy in the US and many economies around the world for more than 100 years now. It may not be exciting, may not be dynamic, but perhaps you don't want things to be exciting and dynamic. You need energy supplies. Again, you you made this point. No one can survive without energy supplies in the modern world. And maybe these kind of very stable, companies that don't take risks. Maybe these are the kind of companies that we actually need. I don't know. What do you think?
2: Okay, so I have to disagree with you on that, Ed, because I think consumers really are looking for sustainable energy supplies. And that's why there's this disruption. And we could think about this disruption as something similar to you know, the iPhone coming out and offering you a different choice as opposed to radio. The only choice you had was to turn on the radio, right? And the iPhone came out and gave you a tremendous amount of choice in what music you could listen to at that moment. So when we're thinking about creating a more dynamic market in energy supply and responding to consumer demand and giving consumers more power and control over their energy, I think that's something that they want. And they also see that these are the more economical models. So if you look at solar, it's cheaper per kilowatt hour basis in most places, than natural gas. So if you want a cheaper, more economical version of energy, then you're going to skew toward that eventually. And you have to figure out how that's going to be the stable business model, because as long as there's a price differential, um, you're not going to have a stable business model um, in the old forms.
0: So Melissa, what do you think about this? Do you think of that competitive market model for electricity, which has become increasingly popular over the past few decades. Is that now being called into question by the kind of problems that we've been seeing this year and this large number of independent competitive suppliers going bust? As I say, seen a lot happening in the UK, but also in uh, some of the US as well.
1: So the answer to this is really complex, and I'll just throw out one thing that relates to decarbonization. And there's this interesting piece that I've been diving into in the last week that was written by Joshua Rhodes, Lynn Keesling, Todd Davidson, and Michael Weber. That talks about you know what have these competitive and not competitive markets done since 2005 in terms of reducing emissions. And overall, the report showed across all power markets in the US that all the power markets have gotten cleaner since 2005, but those with competitive markets reduced emissions faster than those regions without competitive wholesale markets. So it was 35% reduction compared to a 27% reduction. And so... You know, there's certainly an entire discussion that we should have about public goods and, you know, our public health relying on having reliable power supplies and having, you know, companies that can stand the test of time and keep everything flowing. At the same time, thinking about how do we incentivize these companies, this entire system to reduce emissions.
0: So that's really interesting hearing about what's been happening in the US because it's, uh... It's a great kind of natural experiment, if you like, because of that diversity in different types of power markets across the United States, it is possible to make those kind of comparisons. You think about Texas in particular. So Texas has a competitive market. Texas is quite like the UK. And Texas also then has seen a few independent power suppliers going bust this year, partly as a result of the power crisis that we had back in February in Texas. Again, rather similar thing to what happened in the UK, right? Where wholesale prices soared, companies weren't able to pass those prices on to their consumers, and so they ended up failing. Does the experience of Texas make you think that there are some drawbacks to the competitive market model? Is that a reason why, even if potentially you might push forward on decarbonization more quickly in the competitive market, at the end of the day, It's not worth it simply because the risk of disruption is too great. You get too much kind of turbulence in the market when you do get these large price movements there's a potential for things to go badly wrong. And so in the long term, you'll actually end up in a better position with a more conventional, less competitive, more heavily regulated utility model.
1: Yeah, so it's an interesting one. And I think where I need to start in terms of going through this is really digging into what did we see in terms of contributing to this crisis in the UK. So overall, over the past, let's see, year, we've seen gas prices, more. I think it's more than quadruple at this point. And look at the numbers, they went up by about 70% just in the last month alone. And when I'm speaking to my colleagues, so I've got Anne-Sophie Corbeau, Aaron Bletton, Pierre Noel, you know, here at the Center on Global Energy Policy. They specialize in U.S. energy markets and in Europe, the energy markets there. And then speaking to some of my former colleagues at University College London who follow the energy markets, you know, I, I think the Guardian, if I... Captured it correctly when they called it this perfect storm. We've got post COVID, if we can call it that, with Omicron, et cetera, et cetera still going on, but post COVID kind of ramp up in demand, Russia and Nord Stream 2 dynamics, the transmission line from France that had to shut down after that fire, the lack of wind, the nuclear power plant being taken down for maintenance, I mean, the list was long. So I think Perfect Storm might encapsulate it in a similar but different way. Um, It was kind of a perfect storm in Texas as well, where we had this really extreme cold front come through, and it affected every single piece of the system, not just in the power system, but also in the fuel delivery system. I mean, it wasn't just wind turbine blades uh, freezing. It wasn't just, you know, pumps tripping off a nuclear power plant. It wasn't just uh, different facilities freezing and or not being able to get natural gas. It was all of the above which is really problematic. And so, you know, in the Texas case, we ended up seeing some really big winners. And I think, you know, there was um, a lot of strong press about the winners and, you know, some certain things that some companies said, uh, maybe that got out that they weren't too excited about when they saw the backlash against it during the winter storms. And then there were companies that were big, Losers, organizations are big losers. And I know on the big switch during our first season um, that we released last summer, we spoke about the impacts of that spike in prices on consumers, on people who, you know, were already struggling to pay their bills. And so in the case of, you know, one example in Texas, Gritty, you know, who served around, what was it, 30,000 customers and is now out to declare bankruptcy, you know, the individuals and how they saw their prices spike and their bills spike and the risk inherited in that. I've also talked about Brazos Electric Power Company and that, I mean, 30,000 customers on the Gritty side. Brazos, we're talking about over 1.5 million customers. They got this $2.1 billion bill after Winter Storm Uri, and they ended up filing for Chapter 11 very quickly after the storm because they're like, we can't pass those on. It's either us declaring bankruptcy or our customers. You know, this is the situation we're in. These are really tough choices. And I think there's at least one other, the Just Energy Group filing for bankruptcy protection. But I mean, these are the impacts we see when we see these floating power prices around something that is this public good that we rely on to keep the economy running and to keep ourselves safe and healthy in our homes. So, you know, certainly these types of situations highlight the risk of having somewhat less regulation on a public good. And I say somewhat because the UK still has these regulations on prices, which have contributed to the situation we're seeing with bulb overall, um, with their energy price caps, which are set twice a year, et cetera. At the end of the day, I mean, we there's so many different layers to this about how do we keep power flowing? How do we keep the companies that supply it in? business, whether it's individual companies or a whole system, so that power can keep flowing? And how do we make sure that we don't exacerbate energy and security issues that are already existing in the US, in Europe, around the world, where people are struggling just to pay their bills today? So how do we solve all of those things while trying to decarbonize? It's really tough.
0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by Bloom Energy. Bloom Energy is accelerating the hydrogen economy by partnering with industry leaders to produce clean, green hydrogen. Bloom's electrolyzer uses electricity and heat from a variety of clean energy sources, such as concentrated solar power, solar panels, and nuclear power, to generate green hydrogen at the scale needed to tackle today's urgent climate crisis. Bloom's pioneering solid oxide fuel cell platform leverages technology originally developed for Mars, and it's uniquely designed to decarbonize our world's hardest to abate sectors. Bloom's platform has the flexibility to be deployed as a distributed generator of electricity or as an electrolyzer to produce green hydrogen. Learn more at bloomenergy.com slash the energy gang. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Hitachi Energy. The grid is evolving and changing every day, but the fundamentals haven't. Safe, reliable power is needed everywhere. No matter where you are, battery energy storage paired with advanced controls and software can improve resilience and efficiency. With Grid Edge Solutions from Hitachi Energy, you can integrate solar or wind to reach your sustainability goals while managing energy costs. It's all achievable with our innovative Grid Edge Solutions. Learn more at hitachienergy.com offering slash solutions slash grid hyphen edge hyphen solutions. The past few months have been a strange, you might even say, paradoxical time in US energy policy. President Joe Biden has set goals for emissions that imply fundamental shifts away from fossil fuels. But since the summer, the administration has been urging the OPEC plus countries to increase production of oil to bring down gasoline prices. And then last week, the administration announced an additional release of oil from the US Strategic Petroleum Reserve. The White House said the move was being coordinated with China, India, Japan, South Korea and the UK, although if you look into what those countries are actually doing, they haven't quite sounded enthusiastic about dumping a flood of additional oil onto the market. And the action the administration has taken has seemed to contribute to some quite uh, dramatic swings in oil prices. Brent crude, which was up above $82 last week, plunged at the back end of last week and has then recovered very significantly just as I'm looking at it now. Right now it's up about uh, nearly $4 a barrel just today alone. So it's been really quite volatile. There's a lot of other things going on and in particular the news about the Omicron variant of coronavirus is clearly also unsettling the markets and making people nervous about the economic outlook and about future demand for oil. But there does seem to be, as I say, something almost paradoxical about the administration's attitude in simultaneously wanting less oil and more oil on the market. Melissa, what do you think about this? I mean, is this this unfair to think that there's a kind of a contradiction in the administration's strategy? How do you view what they've done?
1: We talked about this a couple of shows ago, I think, which is this tension between at the end of the day, we're looking at going to net zero, we're making, you know, commitments around the world that will take us down that path uh, sooner rather than later. But at the same time, in the meantime, we still are using and depending on these fossil fuels. We still have the vast majority of our transportation fuels coming from fossil fuels. You know, I'm still pulling my trailer with a diesel vehicle because that is what is available to me and works today, even though in the long term, that diesel vehicle will probably be replaced by something else. So... When I look at the Department of Energy release, so overall, the Biden administration has said the Department of Energy is going to be releasing about 50 million barrels of oil from the SPR. Of this, I think it's really important to note that 32 million of those barrels is what we would call an exchange. So those barrels will be returned in the years ahead. So the SPR will be restocked. And this is important because it appears to be a clear sign that this is an effort to tame these higher oil prices that you talked about and the oil prices that we were expecting to see in the future um, amidst these really significant concerns about inflation. I mean the numbers that have been coming out in the past few weeks have been large and sobering here in the US. And so overall you know realizing that 32 million of those 50 million barrels are in exchange and then the other 18 are acceleration of a sale of oil that was previously authorized by Congress, I think is significant in all this. I want to come back to the point you mentioned about uh, the different countries involvement though real quickly, Ed, which is you know the fact that in particular I want to highlight China, What I wonder, and there's a great thread on this actually by Jason Bordoff, the director of our center, talking about the potential geopolitical implications of what's going on right now and how we should measure success or failure when it comes to release of oil from the SPR. And you know, we saw in Glasgow some signs that maybe the US-China relationship is warming up, um, that difficult situations are maybe becoming less difficult when it comes to conversations between the countries. And so I wonder if this is actually a sign of increased cooperation and coordination and the potential for even more in the future between US and China, which could be very significant, not just in terms of near term oil prices and what happens over the next few years, but in progress overall to reach net zero. Because I think there's a lot to be gained from those relationships being warmer and more open.
0: That is fascinating. Yeah, that's a really interesting aspect of it that I hadn't really thought about. I do think when you look at China And China's position in the energy transition, this is going to be one of the most important dynamics for the future, which is that China is by far the world's largest importer of oil. Its oil demand is expected to grow very significantly. Its oil production is not expected to grow very much. China does not have a lot of obvious places where it can get additional oil supplies. So even if you set aside climate considerations completely, Simply on national security grounds, in terms of energy security and reliability of fuel supplies and being able to keep the country on the move, China seems to have a very strong incentive to shift away from oil-based fuels, to electrify transport in particular, to develop its EV industry much more rapidly and to kind of bend that curve so that it doesn't carry on on that pathway of ever-increasing oil demand. And as you say, perhaps there is some potential alignment of US and Chinese interests in that sense. And clearly, there's competition as well. And there's competition in all kinds of different areas. And there is competition even in the clean energy area. And China and the US are both trying to be more successful in terms of developing competitive clean energy industries. But maybe that point about how do you address climate change by shifting away from oil and curbing oil demand is something the US and China could both agree on. Emily, what do you think about this? I mean, in terms of just going back to that point about what the administration's doing in terms of trying to manage the price of oil and to manage uh, gasoline prices down, do you think they're actually undercutting their own climate policy? Are they kind of undermining the effort towards achieving those goals they set themselves of getting to net zero emissions by 2050?
2: You know, actually, I think, I think the opposite, Ed. I think this is actually quite consistent with the administration's climate goals. And there's a pretty complex reason for that. And you have to look at like a lot of different trajectories and how they intersect. So when you think about how much was released from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, about 50 million barrels, that's about enough to cover three days of kind of elevated demand of petroleum use in the whole U.S. We use about 18 million barrels of petroleum a day in the U.S. Um, And it's coinciding with Thanksgiving week. It's the first Thanksgiving in years that people have been able to really travel um, the way that they want to, given the vaccines and, you know, where, where we are in the pandemic right now. So I think the decision was based sort of in not wanting to see gas prices so elevated, at the pumps all over as people travel and are really focused on that on a sort of exciting time for them and you know the reality that we haven't moved away from oil yet. Um, We plan to. There's lots of ways that we have under construction and lots of EV policies that are just approved in the infrastructure bill and lots of um, new models being built by electric vehicle makers. And when you think about the original reason for the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, it was because of the 1970s and that huge oil crunch and how much we really needed oil And so the Strategic Petroleum Reserve can keep the economy going in the U.S. for about a month without the need for imports elsewhere, and it gives the U.S. a lot of power in that oil negotiation. But if you're now in the Biden administration and you're looking at a world where you've said, we are going to encourage electric vehicles, we have seen peak oil demand, we are going to reduce demand for oil, I believe oil is going to be cheaper in the future, then right now it makes a lot of sense just for a few days to even use up their own assets, right? We talk about stranded assets in the financial world all the time, that um, fossil assets are going to be stranded and costly. Um, It makes a lot of sense to use it up a little bit now if you think, you know, we're not going to need that whole month of oil demand in the future, or there's going to be a lot less oil demand in the future.
0: So as usual, we're ending with our free electrons, quick bites on stories related to energy that we've seen over the past week. Um, Melissa, what's yours?
1: Yeah, so I have actually been following all of these Twitter storms about the Houston Chronicle article that came out calling for the resignation of the Texas Railroad Commissioners, Craddock and Christian, after some statements they made after winter storm Yuri. And I think that you know, as someone who has dug into almost all of the 300-page report um, from on, you know, what happened within all the blackouts, it was just an interesting one to see it put so black and white, and you know. It's just, it's been really interesting to follow people's responses because they're on both sides of the fence as to what should be done about statements that don't have backing by data and evidence. Um, but I just, I've been captured up in that. And for those who haven't seen some of those threads, I mean, just go into Energy Twitter, they'll pop up right away. <laughs> so it's a really blunt editorial opinion that came out.
0: Yeah, and no, it's fascinating, isn't it? To see them, as you say, being so blunt. Not often you get such a direct Commentary on regulators as we're seeing them.
1: Yeah. And I'll say uh, the second thing that is a little bit more fun is I've been diving into these this term sustainability chic. I don't know if you guys have followed this at all, um, but I discovered it through some blue sunglasses that have co2 stored in them apparently and i discovered this term sustainability chic and i'm now diving into it in uh in my free time of which i don't have too much but i am diving into it because i'm i'm fascinated and hey if we can make decarbonization cool and chic like i'm all for it like let's do it i won't be buying the sunglasses they were 500 dollars, <laughs> but <laughs> they were still pretty wow, nifty that's,
0: yeah, indeed. <laughs> like, I, i'd like to see in terms yeah. of the uh, the carbon price per tonne of, uh, of the amount of CO2 being sequestered in that pair of sunglasses. <laughs> that probably works out pretty pricey. Oh, man. <laughs> Thanks. Emily, what's yours?
2: Yeah, so for my free electron, I've been looking at this new international sustainability standards board that came out. And I always, you know, I started my career almost as an accounting reporter and covering accounting issues, and that's how I first learned about sustainability Um I think this is like actually a huge moment. It happened during COP26 that the International Financial Reporting Standards said they're going to come out and establish this International Sustainability Standards Board, and it was not... The center of everything that happened at COP26, but it's something that people have been talking about a lot more in the past few weeks. So there is this article that um, Jean Rogers, the founder of the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board in the U.S., put out um, on Medium this week, just talking about sort of the whole history of it and how we finally got to this moment where there's an International Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. And she asks a really interesting question where she's talking about, you know, are the standards that we've even created so far for judging sustainability, are they fit for the purpose of the future? You know, are they outdated? Um, are they ready to be, do they, how are they going to be updated? How are we going to scale them? And I've just been stuck on that concept for a while, thinking about all these net zero goals and everybody that's putting them out and whether the standards and the way that we're measuring our impacts today are something that's really fit for the problems we're trying to solve in the future and what we're building based on those assumptions. Um, I guess the, Similarly, the Washington Post had a story right about COP26 saying that you know countries' climate pledges might be built on flawed data, and um, I'm just wondering about that too. As we make all these net zero pledges and the sustainability accounting standards, whether we're really thinking about the assumptions that underlie all the data that we're collecting today, that we're using to craft this future. So um, I think there's a lot to watch there. I think it's incredibly exciting that there's all this new action on the sustainability standards front, and um, maybe. It's a little dorky or a little dirty. But um, I think definitely the accounting for this and the data around this is something that's going to be really fun to watch in the years ahead.
0: Yeah, I do think that's really fascinating. As the old saying goes, what gets measured gets managed. As you say, this process, which has been going on kind of in the background, certainly not in the uh, the spotlight, not something I think a lot of people are thinking about very much is these sustainability accounting standards, but potentially they could end up being enormously influential. I'm sure that's right. So my one is, uh, we've just been talking about strategic petroleum reserve. My free electron is about the release from the Canadian strategic maple syrup reserve, which amazing to discover that this exists.
1: Amazing. <laughs>
0: Hilarious. <laughs> but it's, it's a serious story, which is that Canada has a strategic maple syrup reserve for managing the market and they've had a huge release from it. It's been a very big um, uh, thing that they've announced. They were announcing releasing about half of their strategic stocks because uh, production this year has been very low. And, and there's a possible uh, climate change angle in here. Apparently, a warm, short spring, which is what we had, is not great for sap production from the maple trees, which is obviously where the syrup comes from. Um, so supplies have been weak. And they're trying to manage the market then with this release i'm not actually sure it turns out to be quite hard to get good data on maple syrup prices the market seems a bit opaque i guess you could say maybe the market's a bit sticky too and so i haven't uh, been able to work out exactly whether there's been <laughs> some kind of boom in maple syrup prices that is thank you Mullis. i'm pleased somebody got that one that was <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's so good ed Wait, Ed, I have something to say on that because I think this is, you're just laying the groundwork there, Ed, for the future maple carbon capture project in Canada. So it sounds like they're going to have to plant some more maple trees to capture more CO2 and create more maple syrup.
0: That is a fantastic idea. That's a great opportunity. We've been talking about ways to uh, capture carbon and generate an income stream from useful products at the same time. Plant more maple trees. Seems like a no brainer. So, that's all we've got time for, for Energy Gang this week. Thank you very much, Melissa.
1: Yeah, Ed, it was good. I uh, Parting comment, I can say I've contributed to the increase in maple syrup consumption during COVID. So uh, I appreciate the Canadians releasing more. Um, but Ed, Emily, great to see you all. Hope you have a good rest of the day.
0: And thank you very much, Emily.
2: Thanks, it was great to be back. See you guys soon.
0: And thank you all very much for listening please let us know what you think. As usual, you can give us your comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering, anything else. We're on Twitter at, at @theenergygang and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. We'll be back in two weeks when we'll be looking at what happens at the grid edge, storage, demand response, and everything related to distributed energy resources. Until then, goodbye.